Okay, today's reading is Mark chapter 2, and you probably noticed many of the events described in this chapter are events that we already read about in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 9 and 12, but, you know, remembering that the Lord has given us four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, instead of just one, uh, He has good reason for us to read and think uh, on these events over and over again. So let's Let's think about what we find in this chapter. And uh, I guess the first point, point that jumps out at you is, uh, who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Um, it, it op- this chapter opens with a well-known account of Jesus healing a paralytic. In verses 1 through 12, um, Jesus' meteoric rise to fame, as, or as Mark would put it, his immediate rise to fame, uh, continued because of his various healings in different towns. And as chapter 2 begins, um, word had quickly gotten around as to where Jesus was. And as usual, people gathered and pressed in closely to see him and listen to what he had to say, verse 2. But because there was no more room where he was, four men famously brought their paralytic friend on a stretcher and let him down through uh, the roof into the house, verses 3 and 4. Now this is where it gets noteworthy and interesting. This is what we read in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there are a couple of things to note here. One, the forgiveness is clearly based on their faith. Jesus saw their faith, presumably the paralytic and the men who brought him. This was evidenced by their dogged determination to get this man into the presence of Jesus for healing. Um, they recognized who he was. Um, our, our forgiveness is not automatic. It comes through faith. And these men believed, as was evidenced by their actions. And so their sins for, were forgiven. But the other remarkable thing about verse 5, no doubt the most remarkable thing, is the mere fact that Jesus forgave this man's sins. I don't doubt that this caught just about everyone off guard. It certainly caught the scribes who were the teachers of the Old Testament law, caught them off guard and not in a good way. When they heard Jesus forgive this man's sins, uh, they took serious offense and, at least in their hearts, accused Jesus of blasphemy. They thought to themselves in verse 7, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, you know, the question is technically correct. The Old Testament does ascribe the forgiveness of sins to God alone. David said in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The Lord himself says in Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. So the scribes were exactly right that only God could forgive sins. They just drew the wrong conclusion. Instead of concluding that Jesus was, in fact, uh, God himself, they reasoned that he was blaspheming by claiming claiming something for himself that only belonged to God. Well, Jesus knew that they were thinking this in verse 8. If you... Uh, listened uh, to yesterday's, you, you, you know, uh, you might notice that Jesus 
immediately knew what they were thinking. <laughs> I don't know why Mark says that so much. Anyway, um, no doubt their, their contempt for Jesus was written all over their face. Um, he, he could probably feel their stares. And uh, Jesus asked them as, um, as, as humorous, at least to me, uh, a question. He, he asked them, which is easier to do? To tell a paralytic to get up and walk home or to tell him his sins are forgiven. And the scribes were probably thinking, what kind of question is that? Um, they, in their minds, are probably thinking, well, both are impossible tasks. Neither is easier than the other. And uh, knowing that Jesus had placed two impossible tasks, at least impossible to them, before him, he then heals the man's physical problem such that he could walk home to prove to them that he had the authority also to heal the man's spiritual problem as well. Um, if he could do one of the impossible tasks, that is, effectively command a paralytic's limbs to work properly, then it should lead to their other reasonable belief that he could do the other impossible task, that is, forgive sins. Uh, in, in light, it uh, of the rest of the scripture, we have an abundance of additional evidence of the deity of Jesus. This is just another one of those pieces. That is, Jesus doing things that only God can do. Therefore, Jesus is God. In this chapter, we also have the calling and conversion of Levi, or Matthew. Um, the calling of Levi illustrates many things. For one, it shows the authority of Jesus. We see this in the fact that Jesus approached Levi at his place of work, commands him to leave everything and follow him, and Levi does that very thing, verse 14. That's a pretty clear sign of Jesus' authority. Um, for another thing, it shows Jesus' desire for all kinds of people to know him and follow him, not just those who were respectable in the eyes of the public. In the eyes of God, all are unworthy of his grace. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Therefore, no man is more deserving of God's grace than any other man. But perhaps my favorite thing about this account is Levi's excitement over his newfound favor with the Lord. Not only did he immediately obey and follow his Lord, but he threw a feast in his home for the Lord and invited all his friends to attend. Um, Levi had just experienced the liberating grace of God, and he wanted others to experience the same and presumably because of Levi's witness, we're told that, quote, verse 15, there were many tax collectors and sinners who followed him. Let's follow the example of Levi and joyfully bear witness to the saving grace of Jesus wherever we go and do that in our missional community groups. That's one reason why in our missional community groups we eat together every week uh, to make it a, a comfortable place and a joyful place to bear witness to Jesus and pray that the Lord will bear fruit through that. And the final thing I want to point out here in Mark 2 is about fasting. Um, this chapter ends with two encounters uh, with the Pharisees. After registering their complaint due to Jesus associating with the likes of Levi, verses 16 and 17, some question why Jesus' disciples don't fast in verses 18 through 22. Um, and also why Jesus and his disciples do things that are, quote-unquote, not lawful 
to do on the Sabbath. Well, without going into lengthy detail on each of these points, suffice it to say that some activities that we rightfully engage in now will cease to exist in the presence of the Lord, and such is the case with fasting and observance of the Sabbath. The whole purpose of fasting in the Old Testament was to be a reminder of our, our intense need for the Lord. Well, when the Lord is present, that need is met. In verse 20, Jesus reminds them that when he is gone, his followers will fast again because we're again waiting for his return. There will be no fasting in heaven. Likewise, the Sabbath was instituted to be a picture of the ultimate rest that we will experience in the heavenly presence of the Lord. The Sabbath will be fulfilled in heaven. Um, the disciples weren't observing some of these things because they were in the presence of the Lord himself, though some of them didn't understand this or believe this. And this will be true for us in heaven one day. Many of the things that we now practice, prayer as an example, will cease to be when we're in the presence of the Lord. As we practice these things now, it kind of should create in our hearts a longing for the hastening of that day in which all these things will cease and we will see the Lord face to face. And that's Mark chapter 2.